purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Jonathan Safran Foer. Jonathan Safran Foer is the author of the best-selling novels Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. His stories and articles have appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and The New York Times. He's here today on Health Watch to talk about his first book of nonfiction, Eating Animals. Welcome to Health Watch, Jonathan Safran Foer. Hi. Hi. You, you start out your book, Eating Animals, about talking about the relationship between eating and storytelling. And you talk about how they're inseparable for you. And, and you start the book with stories about your grandmother, a Holocaust survivor. I was curious why you chose that beginning and, and how that relates to your overall thesis in the book. Well, I should say, you know, I don't think that I'm in any way unusual in having stories play an important role in how I eat the food choices that I make. Food is obviously more than just calories that we put in our mouth to fill up. It's what our parents fed us, what our grandparents fed us, how we think of ourselves, our cultures, for some of us, our religious identities. And, you know, the ways that we talk and think about food, I think, influence what we buy in the supermarket and what we order at restaurants more than any argument or nutritional information would. So my grandmother's at the beginning of the book because she's sort of the presiding, I don't know, she's the matriarch of the family. She's the primary storyteller. And the kinds of lessons she taught us when we were kids, which often came through meals, through eating, have everything to do with my thinking about what kind of home I want to create. And, you know, the occasion for writing the book was really the birth of my first son. You, you talk also about eating not just as a form of transmitting knowledge and storytelling and, and the um, endurance of ritual, but also as, as a way we can possibly forget. How, how does that relate to, to eating? Well, it's that one kind of story can take precedence over another kind of story. So, you know, the story of the Thanksgiving turkey might end up sort of negating or, or allowing us to forget the story of you know, the lessons our parents taught us about what it means to treat animals well or to respect the environment. But also, you know, we are not the only storytellers involved here. When you go to supermarket these days, and often even at the restaurant, food is, is explicitly accompanied by stories. You know, you'll see a package on a um, carton of eggs of chickens, you know, running around outside. Or in a restaurant, it will say, this this pork chop comes from this farm and was raised, the, the pig was raised in this way. You know, it's almost never the case that when eating, we tell or hear only one story. Usually there's this web that, that we're in the middle of, and it's a question of how do we rank the importance of different stories, because you can't have them all at once. You know, you can't necessarily have the story of the um, Thanksgiving turkey while also having the story of you know, what it means to be concerned about the environment or what it means to be concerned about the continued ability to use antibiotics for human illness. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the story that's told at the supermarket. And um, I, I would imagine as a novelist, as a writer, the devolving de of the language around that story must be interesting to you. And you talk about how, in Eating Animals, how uh, the terms free range 
and cage-free and organic with regards to the raising of animals. Um, those terms don't mean very much. Can you can you explain to our listeners why not? I, I think a lot of people look to those terms as as a a comforting marker that what they're doing is responsible around their their eating of of meat. Well, you know, the fastest growing sector in the food industry in America is cage-free and free-range eggs, and that's not in Berkeley or New York, but the entire country. And it says something amazing if you think about it, because it's a food that doesn't taste better and isn't any better for us. But people are buying because of their instincts about what's right and what's wrong and what kind of story is important to them. Unfortunately, you know, these labels are not only not the silver bullet that a lot of people are hoping for. You know, if I just buy this, I can stop thinking about it. But in many cases, they mean, like, nothing at all. The case of free range for um, egg-laying hens, for example, not even defined. It literally means nothing. There's no kind of egg that couldn't be called free range if you wanted to call it free range. Cage free means exactly what it sounds like, which is not nothing, but it's not a lot. You know, to say that an animal is not literally in a cage says nothing about how much space it's given, the conditions that it's living in, what kind of drugs it might be fed, or how it was bred to either be healthy or suffer. So is it possible for a cage-free chicken to not have any space at all or, or almost no space and no access to the outdoors? It's entirely possible. Cage-free says nothing about, that doesn't say anything about the amount of space that they're given. I mean, it's, all, all that it says is that they're not in a cage. So um, where should people go from here in terms of um, those labels? Do you, do you take the tact that people should be getting to know their farmers or um, abandoning eating eggs altogether? Well, I think it's a great idea to get to know your farmer. There is a big difference between factory farming and small farming. We haven't even used those terms yet, but factory farming is the dominant system in America right now. About 99% of the animals that we eat are raised on factory farms, and it's not the easiest thing in the world to to find, but it's quite easy to recognize. You know, it typically involves raising animals indoors in extremely high concentration and feeding them foods their bodies don't naturally digest. Turkeys, for example, um, have been bred so radically they can no longer even reproduce sexually, any of them. So, you know, what's the answer? I think there isn't any one answer. I mean, everyone who thinks about this stuff, whether from an environmental perspective or an animal welfare perspective or just supporting small farmers, agrees that we have to eat less and probably a lot less meat. We now eat 150 times as much chicken as we did just 80 years ago. It's pretty radical if you, if you think about that. The other answer for a lot of people is supporting small farms. You know, get to know farmers at your farmer's market. Go to their farms, see for yourself how animals are raised, what they're being fed, what they look like. The reality of the world we live in is that most people are not going to stop eating meat tomorrow, but I think a lot of people can imagine eating significantly less meat and can imagine eating meat from different sources. Well, eggs seem to be an interesting place in the diet of people who are struggling with this issue ethically and environmentally. I think a lot of people presume that eating eggs is going to be low on the the cruelty uh, hierarchy that uh, in comparison to taking the life of an animal, eating an egg would be a relatively low impact thing. But I know when you were here in Portland uh, promoting eating animals, you you actually argued that they they might be a crueler choice than eating beef, for instance. And I was was curious about that. It is for sure. You know, a lot of people, when they think about meat, they talk about giving up beef first. When in fact, in terms of animal cruelty, you'd want to be a cow, 
of all the various farmed animal species. The worst fate is that of the egg-laying hen. And if that is, you know, your singular concern, animal welfare, then eggs really are probably the first thing to give up. Uh, and why why is that? That what well, what well, is the cruel? What is actually the the thing that makes them one of the cruelest choices? Well, they're raised in windowless sheds, often packed very nearly body to body, if not body to body. They're often in battery cages. It can happen that their toes will actually grow around the cages. And, you know, they live this way until they are spent, at which point they become chicken broth, basically. It's not a good life. Now, a lot of people, you know, animal welfare is important to them, but perhaps the environment is more important to them. That's the reason a lot of people do do stop eating beef, because environmentally speaking, it's the worst of the farm animal species. But, you know, there's no... The thing about this conversation is it really has to be a conversation. It can't be a set of rules. It can't be, like, finger-wagging, because... People respond to these different problems differently. You know, I know plenty of vegetarians who really don't care about animal welfare, or at least don't like to talk about caring about it, um, but are doing it strictly from envi- for environmental reasons. I know, you know, Greenpeace, for example, no longer serves meat at their functions, and it's not because they're an animal welfare organization. There are people who don't get, get particularly excited about the environment, but are vegetarian because of the, you know, really radical health effects of consuming meat in the ways that we now do. 76 million Americans get food poisoning every year, and the CDC has said the prime culprit is animal agriculture. We know that it's making our antibiotics less effective. We know that these factory farms are propagating swine flu and avian flu. We know that there's a direct link between meat consumption and the number one and number two killers in America, heart disease and cancer. We know it's making us obese. We know it's giving us greater rates of obesity, excuse me, of diabetes, and we know it's making us shorter lived. These are all facts. They're not open for dispute. What is open for dispute is how much they should matter to you. And that's not for any one person to say. My thinking as I was writing the book was, wow, you know, I'm finding this stuff very moving, very compelling. And I bet other people would too, which is not to say that other people will you know, need to change their values or that I, you know, that there was even an argument to be had. I I really did have the feeling as I was writing the book that nobody's mind would need to be changed. That um, perhaps for different reasons, perhaps in different ways, but exposed to the truths of this industry, nobody would like it. You're listening to Health Watch on KBOO Portland. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. And today we're talking with Jonathan Saffron Foer, the author of Eating Animals. Well, it, the the part of the book, Eating Animals, about the environment, I think is, is it's fascinating to me how little that is spoken about. Uh, you, you quote some really astonishing facts. The United Nations says that animal agriculture is 40% greater contribution to global warming than all transportation combined. And it's interesting to think about how much we hear about uh, transportation about driving as a source of global warming and if meat eating is actually 40% more than that and it's not even on the table for discussion. Why that number, you... by the way, has since been revised the World Watch Institute since I published the book. And, and the UN in the report suggested that it probably was 
larger than that, but it's a very difficult thing to measure. In any case, World Watch Institute revised to 51% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is to say animal agriculture is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than everything else put together. And and why do you think, given that it has this primary place, this it is something, if we reduced our meat eating by half on the globe, it would have these huge benefits for the global population. Why do you think this isn't even on the table for discussion? Because it's a very, very difficult thing to talk about because, and this comes back to the beginning of our conversation, because it has so much to do with these stories, you know, that are so fundamental to how we think of ourselves and who we are. You know, it's not a, it's not like a coincidence that this so often becomes an argument, that it so often makes people feel defensive or aggressive, and we haven't found good ways to talk about it and we need to and and um you know i think we're moving in that direction you know al gore now talks about his own, own reduction in meat consumption and why it's something that everybody has to be thinking about the uk climate chief um said in an interview also since after my book came out that the only way to save the planet in his words was a global movement toward vegetarianism i think it's now being mainstreamed in a way that wasn't possible even like a year or two ago you, you use your dog, George, as an example of the ways in which we, the, the inconsistencies that we may have around, we, around how we view animal welfare. Uh, could you talk a little bit about George? Uh, what can I say? I would put her on if she were here. Um, <laughs> she's a nut. She's a big mutt. She was found tied up in a cemetery not so far from where I live in, in Brooklyn. I didn't like dogs very much before I got one. In fact, I was afraid of them. And... You know, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that caring about animals has anything to do with loving them, first of all, or with sort of making them more human. And those are just both untrue. I think that caring about animals has to do with like a, a sort of baseline human decency. You know, I don't, I don't have a desire to like share a bed with a chicken or to knit a sweater for a pig. I just <laughs> think they should be treated like chickens and like pigs. And they don't need to you know, be self-conscious in the way that we are. That, that, that shouldn't be the threshold for keeping them out of cages, you know, for the duration of their pregnancies. They don't need to be able to read and write to not have their appendages removed without anesthetic. So, you know, the thing about having George, my dog, is, is not that I suddenly re- realized, oh, wow, all animals are deeply feeling and they are so communicative. It's just that, you know, one, once you are, once you live with an animal, once you're you know, really have time to share a space with it, you begin to realize that they, they have very strong interests, and their strongest interest is to avoid pain, just as it's human beings' strongest interest. And that is a significant thing. Just as you sort of dispel the, the myth around eggs being a cruelty-free choice, you also spend a lot of time talking about fish. And I know I know a lot of people in my own life that call themselves vegetarians who eat fish. And I was very moved by your story of Franz Kafka and, and going to the aquarium and his um, efforts to expand the sphere of compassion in his life. And I was curious how you see that dynamic with fish eaters and vegetarianism and then also what is so troublesome about the fishing industry today? Well, it's kind of interesting because it's almost impossible to get worked up about fish, you know? They're at the far end of our concern, at least in terms of animals that we eat. And yet at the same time, you really, it's hard to find anyone who doubts that fish feel pain. If you've ever like reeled in a, a big fish, or a fish of any size, 
you know, it's disingenuous to argue that it's not, it doesn't care. It's disingenuous to argue that it's not fighting for its life. So how seriously should we take that? I don't know. It's not, I don't know. There isn't an answer. Science gives us plenty of reasons to think that they, fish brains are, and bodies are equipped with some of the same sort of sensory tools that human bodies and minds are. There are good scientific reasons to think that fish are smarter than we have imagined them to be. One thing we know for sure is that unlike with chickens and cows and pigs, no fish gets a good end. You know, none of them are stunned before they're killed. None of them are killed instantly for that matter. They all suffer, you know, prolonged deaths. Is that the end of the world? Maybe not. Is it the worst thing going on in the world? Certainly not. But is it something that's worth considering? You know, I think so. I think also worth considering is the environmental um, destruction that modern fishing has wreaked. You know, fishery scientists now estimate that there will be no wild fish in the oceans in 2048. And if that sounds like a precise number, it's because it was based on a very precise calculation. And that doesn't mean that our tuna rolls are going to be twice as expensive or that we're going to be eating tilapia instead of tuna. It means there's going to be no wild fish in the oceans. We are just emptying it out, and it is our taste for fish that is emptying it out. Did you know from the outset, Jonathan, that Eating Animals was going to be a book that was part memoir and part investigative reporting and part storytelling? Or did that just sort of evolve as you as you started writing it and exploring it for yourself? Uh, I didn't know what form it would ultimately take. I, I really wasn't sure. I can only say that I went into it with an open mind. Um, if anything, I was you know, surprised in both directions, surprised by um, how bad factory farming is and also surprised by how good small and family farming can be. And I hope that the book reflects both of those surprises and reflects um, you know, the, the real fullness of this conversation. It's not black and white. It's not, not binary. Do you have any final thoughts for listeners who may be starting this journey themselves, grappling with these issues, environmental and ethical and, and otherwise? You know, being, eat by your own values. You know, people sometimes say to me, oh, but my, you know, grandmother makes this brisket and my dad makes this and we do this and this and this. And um, I often say, well, then eat those things. But, you know, if we all just stopped eating fast food, if we stopped eating, I don't know, chicken or turkey sandwich at the airport, if we stopped eating McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's, if we stopped eating chicken beef burritos and instead ate vegetarian burritos, if we just got rid of the meat that we actually don't care about, that doesn't even taste really good, that serves absolutely no function whatsoever in terms of culture or identity or storytelling, if we just got rid of those things and only held on to the meat that mattered to us, it would be a different world. You know, factory farming would disintegrate. It was great having you on Health Watch today. Thank you so much. We're talking today with Jonathan Saffron-Foer, the author of Eating Animals. This is Health Watch. I'm your host, Dr. David Naiman.